Chapter 10 of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 10 In Budapest, three things happened. First, Parago slipped in the street and broke his ankle bone, so that he lay seven weeks in hospital, during which time Blanquette and I and Narcisse lived like sparrows on the housetops, dazed by the incomprehensibilities of the strange city. Secondly, Parago's aunt, his mother's sister, died intestate, leaving a small sum of money which she inherited as her nearest surviving relative. Thirdly, Parago fell into the arms of Theodore Isolin, the painter, an old friend of Parish student days. The consequences of the first accident, though not immediate, were lasting. Parago walked for ever afterwards with a slight limp, and his tramps along the high roads of Europe had to be abandoned. The consequence of the second was that Parago went to London. Some legal formality, the establishment of identity or what not, necessitated his presence. I dare say he could have arranged matters through consuls and lawyers and such like folk, but Parago, who was childishly simple in business matters, obeyed the summons to London without question. As a consequence of the third, I became an inmate of the house of Theodore Isolin. It was all very bewildering. It was arranged that during Parago's absence in England I should board with Isolin, Blanquette with Isolin's elderly model, a lady of unimpeachable respectability and a rough and ready acquaintance with the French language, and that Narcisse should alternate between the two establishments. Parago's business concluded, he would return to Budapest, collect us, and go whither the wind might drift him. I was provided with a respectable outfit and with detailed instructions as to correct behaviour in a lady's house. Theodore Isolin's wife was a charming woman. Everything was arranged, but who could reckon on Parago? On the night before his departure, indeed it must have been two or three in the morning, Parago burst into my little attic bedroom, candle in hand, and before I had time to rub my startled eyes, sat down on the bed and began to speak. My son, said he, I've had an inspiration. But Parago would have awakened a boy at two or three in the morning to announce an inspiration, and whom a Parago would alter the course of human lives on the flash of an impulse. It came, he cried, while I was supping with Isolin. I told him, I worked it all out. He agreed, so it is settled. What, master? I asked, sitting up. His slouch felt hat and his swarthy bearded face, his glittering eyes and the candle on his knees gave him the air of an excited Guy Fawkes. Your career, my son. The money I am going to collect in London shall be devoted to your education. You shall learn to paint, infant Raphael and Isolin shall teach you. And you shall learn the manners of a gentleman, and Madame Isolin shall teach you. And you shall learn what it is to have a heart. And if you care to hang for Parago, two years separation shall teach you. Two years? I cried aghast. But, Master, I can't live two years here without you. We find we can live without a devil of a lot of things when we have to, my son. When I smashed my furniture with the crusader's mace, I thought I could not live anywhere without something. But here I am, as alive as a dragonfly. He went on talking. It was for my good. His broken ankle bone had compelled him to resign his peripatetic tutorship in the University of the Universe. In an error academy, he would be but a poor instructor. If he had taught me to speak the truth and despise lies and shams, 
and to love pictures and music and cathedrals and books and trees and all beautiful things, nom de Dieu, he had accomplished his mission. It was time for other influences. When an inspiration such as tonight's came to him, he took it as a command from a higher power, and convinced that he believed it, against which he was powerless. Providence ordains that you stay here with the Islands. Afterwards, you shall go to Jeannot's studio in Paris. In the meantime, you can attend classes in the humanities at Budapest. Can't understand the beastly language, I grumbled. You will learn it, my son. No one ever speaks it out of Hungary, I contended. My son, said he, the value of a man is often measured by his useless and fantastic attainments. Then the candle ends sputtered out, and we were in darkness. Parago bade me good night, and left me to a mingled sense of burned candle grease and desolation. He departed the next day. Blanquette and I, with a dejected Narcisse at our heels, walked back from the railway station to the hotel, where, losing all sense of manly dignity, I broke down crying, and Blanquette put her arm round my neck and comforted me, motherwise. Two months afterwards, Parago wrote to Blanquette to join him in Paris, and when the flutter of her wet handkerchief from the railway carriage window became no longer visible, then indeed I felt myself to be a stranger in a strange land. Two years. I can remember even now that endless heartache. The Isolins were kind. Madame Isolin, a refined Hungarian lady, became my staunch friend, as well as my instructress in manners. My life teemed with interests, and I worked like a little maniac. But all the time I longed for Parago. Had it not been for his letters, I should have scented my way back to him like a dog across Europe. All those letters of Parago, I have them still, what a treasury they are of grotesque fantasy and philosophic wisdom. They gave me but little news of his doings. He had settled down in Paris with Blanquette as his housekeeper. His floridly anathematized ankle kept him hobbling about the streets while his heart was chasing butterflies over the fields. He founded a cornaclium for the cultivation of the higher conversation at the Café Delphine. He had taken up Persian and was saturating himself with Hafiz and Ferdusi. His health was good. Indeed, he was a man of iron constitution. Blanquette now and then supplemented these meagre details of objective life. The master had taken a bel appartement. There were curtains to his bed. Food was dear in Paris. They had been to Fontainebleau. Narcisse had stolen the sausages of the concierge. The master was always talking of me and of the great future for which I was destined. But when I became famous, I was not to forget my little Blanquette. I see the sprawling, misspelt words now. Il ne faut jamais oublier ta petite blanquette. As if I could ever forget her. I arrived in Paris one evening, a day or two earlier than I was expected. It had been ordained by Parago that I should break my journey at Berlin in order to visit that capital. But affection tugged at my heartstrings and compelled me to travel straight through from Budapest. It was Parago and Blanquette and Narcisse that I wanted to see and not Berlin. Yet when I stepped out of the train onto the Paris platform, I was conscious for the first time of development. I was decently attired. I had a bag filled with the garments of respectability. I had money in my pockets, also a packet of cigarettes. 
a porter took my luggage and inquired in the third person whether Monsieur desired a cab. Temptation was too great for eighteen. I took the cab in a lordly way and drove to number eleven Rue des Saladiers, where Parigo had his bel appartement. And, with the anticipatory throb of joy at beholding my beloved master, was mingled a thrill of vainglorious happiness. Astico in a cab. It was absurd, and yet it seemed to fall within the divine fitness of things. The cab stopped in a narrow street. I had an impression of tall houses looking fantastically dilapidated in the dim gaslight, of little shops on the ground floor, and of little murky gateways leading to the habitations above. Beside the gateway of number 11 was a small workman's drinking shop, sometimes called in Paris a zinc, on account of the polished zinc bar, which is its principal feature. Untidy, slouching people filled the street. Directed by the concierge to the Saint-Quay-Margouche, I mounted narrow, evil-smelling, badly-lighted stairs and rang at the designated door. It opened. Blanquette appeared with a lamp in her hand. Monsieur Désir? Mais c'est moi, Blanquette. In another minute she had ushered me in, set down the lamp, and was hugging me in her strong young arms. But, my little Estico, I did not know you. You have changed. You are no longer the same. Tu es tout à fait, monsieur. How proud the master will be. Where is he? Alas, the master did not expect me today, and was at the Café Delphine. She would go straightway and tell him. I must be tired and hungry. She would get me something to eat. But who would have thought I should have come back a monsieur? How I had grown. I must see the apartment. This was the salon. I looked around me for the first time. Nothing in it, save the rickettiness of a faded rep suite arranged primly round the walls, and a few bookshelves stuffed with tattered volumes, suggested Parigo. The round centre table, covered with American cloth, and the polished floor were spotless. Cheap print curtains adorned the windows, and a cage containing a canary hung between them. Three or four oleographs, one a portrait of Garibaldi, in gilt frames, formed the artistic decoration. It was I who chose the pictures, said Blanquette proudly. She opened a door and disclosed the sleeping chamber of the master, very bare but very clean. Another door led into the kitchen, a slip of a place but glistening like the machine room of a man of war. I have a bedroom upstairs, and there is one also for you which the master has taken. Come, and I will show you. We mounted to the attics, and I was duly installed. I would have put some flowers if I had known you were coming, said Blanquette. We went down again, and she prepared food for me, her plain face beaming as she talked. She was entirely happy. No one so perfect as the master had ever been the head of a household. Of course he was untidy, but such was the nature of men. If he did not make stains on the floor with muddy boots and lumps of meat thrown to Narcisse, and litter the rooms with clothes and tobacco and books, what occupation would there be for a housekeeper? As it was, she worked from morning to night. And the result, was it not neat and clean and beautiful? Ah, she was happy not to be playing the zither in brasserie. All her dreams were realised. She had a menage, and she had the master to serve. Now she would fetch him from the Café Delphine. Half an hour afterwards, he strode into the room, followed by Blanquette and Narcisse. He spoke in French and embraced me French fashion. Then he cried out in English and wrung me by the hand. He was almost as excited as Narcisse, who leaped and barked frantically. 
It is good to have him back, eh, Blanquette? Oui, maître. He does not know how sad it has been without him. Blanquette smiled, wept, and removed the remains of my supper. Then she set on the table glasses and a bottle of tisane they had bought on the way home. We drank the sour, sweet champagne as if it were liquid gold, and clinked glasses, and with Narcisse all talked and barked together. It was a glad homecoming. Arago changed very little. The hair on his temple was beginning to turn grey, and his sallow cheeks were thinner. But he was the same hairy, unkempt creature of prodigious fingernails and disreputable garments, still full of strange oaths and picturesque fancy, and still smoking his pipe with the porcelain bowl. Presently Blanquette retired to bed, and Parago and I talked far into the night. Before we separated, with a comprehensive wave of the hand, he indicated the primly set furniture and polished floor. Did you ever behold such exquisite discomfort? Poor Blanquette. End of chapter 10